0: G'day and welcome back to the Talking Leadership podcast series. Thanks again for joining me. And this is one of those podcast sessions that I know you'll enjoy. I had the privilege of being able to speak with Raquel Hadramani, the director at the Hadramani Group. It was quite an in-depth discussion around this thing called leadership. And I'm sure you'll enjoy Raquel's perspective on this leadership issue. Thanks again for joining me. And I'm going to hand over to Raquel. How are you, mate? And thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, Eric. Always a pleasure.
0: Let's go and start things off and, and go to first principles here. How did you get to the role of director and what did you learn on that pathway? As
1: We're, we're a family-run business and we're in our fourth generation. So in some sense, uh, I was very fortunate to be groomed for the role. We're, we're eight of us in our generation with um, three of the elder generations still very much alive and, and participative in the business. My father retired a few years ago, and, and my uncle a few years prior to that. But um, active involvement there are nine of us in our in our family business today, and it really started, you know, on the shop floor. So we we manufacture clothing and apparel, and I was supposed to go work for um, a large online bookseller out of university when my my father asked me to come back, or rather, said it would it would be nice to have you back in in sri lanka on the factory floor and any illusions of being given an easy ride were thrown out the window i was put into an embroidery plant which had some issues that we were running and it was a, a real learning experience because you got to understand business from the ground level up what were the pain points um, how are you going to solve problems and there were a lot of learnings you know you it, it's not do as i say or say as i do it's it's very much like a sport right you need all the pieces to be working beautifully in order to to achieve success and that wasn't as apparent uh, day 1 you know we we struggled with issues it was like but i asked you to do this why haven't you done this and you'd be given a multitude of excuses or or re- very valid reasons and you had to keep going deeper and deeper and that's why i love speaking with kevin on the best practice network because it's really the you know, the tenets of lean are really very much social and it's understanding where the problem lies and how do you solve it together and and get the best out of people leadership to me as a meaning has really evolved over the past few years you know uh, at first I used to say there's a very thin line between delegation and abdication you can push things down but but if you don't follow up if you don't have the discipline to check on things and and have the conversations the more and more I see it and the more and more i I kind of continue my journey. It's not about solving the problem yourself. It's about looking at the processes and seeing how to improve them, but but more as a moderator or as a coach. And working with your team to really look at their talent, because when, when you're sitting in a board position or when you're sitting you know, in an office, you're so far away from the real life issues on a production floor that you may have a theory or an assumption, but unless you're willing to roll up your sleeves and go down to the shop floor and see it in practice it's very difficult to make decisions. All you can do is ask the thought-provoking questions.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Interesting for someone like me, who's trying to learn more and get into the deep dive of what leadership means, that More and more leaders are saying that their view on and their definition of leadership is changing over time. Now, you mentioned your time with the network and that that has in some way shaped your learning. But I I know that your organization is uh, multi uh, multinational; It's uh, in lots of different jurisdictions. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, do you see cultural differences in leadership or is it basically the same irrespective of culture?
1: there are nuances in culture what really shines through is you know your your purpose and your values of the organization that need to that really define the culture behaviors may be slightly different because of um, cultural norms in a country and obviously that that's one of the the tenets of our of our group right one of our prime values is respect and if you go operate in a, in another country you've got to respect the cultural values there understand what What the culture is all about, and it's if you boil it out, if you boil it down, it's really very similar, and it's all about integrity, trust, and an open communication.
0: That's interesting. I've I've had some other guests who've had international experience and they said exactly what you said, that when you take away the cultural facade, people want to be recognized, people want to be valued and people want to be listened to and respected for what they do. I mean, it's a fairly simple formula, but if you don't engage with that culture and the nuances, then everything else gets a bit hazy. That That's what was told to me because I haven't worked in, in transnational organizations. So I haven't had the uh, the challenge that would come with understanding the cultural context in which you work, you've seen multiple um, pathways of leadership in, in different countries. Where, When you've seen it go wrong, and I don't want you to name the individual or the business, but when you've seen it go wrong in other cultural contexts, is it because there was a disconnect between what was happening in that culture and the cultural understanding, or just a lack of understanding what, what effective leadership is? I think
1: it's multitude of reasons. right? I think if you try and bring in too many, um, too many new members in an or- into an organization at the top without understanding the culture, the existing culture of the organization, you're, you're likely to upset the apple cart. Um, I think it's also a case of communication. And I think the, the biggest failures we've had are where the communication has been very superficial. What I mean by that is, um, if I ask you how a production runs going and you say, yeah, it's going okay, I'll take that at face value. I mean uh, to mean there are no burning bridges and that's fine. But it's really moving the conversation into a fact-based rather than emotional conversation. And I think that's what that was one of my my biggest failures um, personally. It's that I see a bad KPI and I'd react. And I think that's one of the hardest things for, for a human to do, right? You see something wrong or you see something and and it's how you control your emotions. And it's very easy to say something's good or something's bad, but it's, it's harder to stand back and, and ask the question, why, why has that gone wrong? And how are we going to fix it? And are we treating the symptom or are we treating the root cause? So this doesn't happen again. And doing that in a calm and measured approach, I think is the hardest thing for anyone. And it's, it's something we, we I mean, I, I still make those mistakes, right. And I have to check myself.
0: It's always nice to hear when someone admits what they were like and that there's been some growth in their thinking. And I'm still married to this idea that it's only through experience that you get to the point where you can say that out loud. It's always interesting to talk to someone who has tamed the the angry response, because I think it's the easiest emotion to go to when Absolutely. things have gone wrong, because you could look at it and go, you know, maybe there's a process here that didn't need to be. Maybe there's something that we're insisting that the production line needs to do that is redundant. As systems go, go along and as you're looking and inspecting why you do what it is that you do, there's nothing like a pandemic to come along to make you reassess those processes and find out just where things might have gone wrong, and I'm sure you learned a lot from that. But my question for you is: Did you get more introspective as COVID has gone on, or was it because others had been that you've joined the conversation? Like, what, what, what was the catalyst for you to start thinking more about the the leadership pathway? Uh,
1: again, a hybrid. I'm I'm not, I'm not ducking the question, Aaron. That's okay. But, That's alright. Um, so we, just before the pandemic, we, we decided we were going to go through with um, a brand new installation of an ERP, uh, Enterprise Resource Planning System. At that point, the, the pandemic had just hit. So we signed a contract in February the pandemic hit in March, we went into a six-week lockdown. As a board, we we still took the decision we're going to proceed with this, with a consulting firm. And we started to look at our, our business processes in detail. And I'm just pulling out my notes because we had a, a great conversation, yes, just this morning, where uh, a colleague mentioned, you know, if you look at a process in isolation, it can work. It can, with a few tweaks, it still works. But a process without insights and being able, without the data to be measured, it, you can never be truly decisive about, about the gaps in the system. And But if you don't measure the process or measure the results of the process, you how do you define whether it's a good process or a bad process? And it's, it's very easy for us to say, okay, I, pro- I can procure items. Great. I can procure items. It's a good process, right? I know how to procure items. But when I start going down into the detail and saying, I can procure five pieces Per hour or 10 pieces per hour, then I have a basis of performance. And we started to really unlock our our whole system. And we said, great, we have so many processes, but do we actually measure what they do? Are they redundant in this new world that we live in? We started, we went, we we pivoted to work from home within two weeks. I mean, we were we were all up down, but you know, finance needed to run. And we figured out a way. And it wasn't perfect, but. It allowed us to experiment, to trial, to create this culture of, hey, I gave it my best shot, and you're going to get a pat on the back for that, no matter the, the end result. That made me wonder about our business. And you know, when, you're, when times are good, you, you don't really look at the problems in your industry or, or in your company, and you kind of accept the status quo for what it is. But when you face a six-week lockdown in manufacturing, which affects your cash flow, which affects your associates, which makes you wonder about your existence... I think you you're that much more motivated to say I don't want to be caught in this ever ever again.
0: Yeah, um, look at uh, the. This idea that, and and I think you've captured it well, the idea that when things are going good, you're not really worried about the introspection, but when they go to poo, you do start getting a lot more introspective and in your own organizational context. Did you have your senior leaders coming to you and suggesting pathways forward or were they looking to you for the solution or was it a team effort did you all sort of sit there looking at each other going well we've got to come up with something like was that aha moment did it come from an individual or was it all of you collectively sort of looking at at the world and going yeah that we've got to do something here
1: I mean we we have an incredible team of CEOs and managing directors and and layers within the within the organization and I think it was um it was a joint decision you know the first week it was really the world had come to a complete halt <laughs> and we we were looking at each other going what now but I think that lasted a day or two and you know we we jumped on Zoom or Microsoft Teams started getting on calls and saying okay how about this and how about this and I think we realized that no one person has all the answers, but you have to be able to create a safe enough space to, to throw up ideas. And some stick, some don't, but you you decide together and up to a point management by consensus works where you have the buy-in. You you look at, you know, we, we had to do some, we had to make some tough calls. We had to take salary cuts for a short period of time across the organization. And we it became an open conversation with our associates and our team. And we gave them a you know, we didn't know how long we were going to be shut for. So it was a painful conversation to have, but we spoke about it. We decided how we were going to do it. The mechanism that input came in from our CEOs, they communicated to their teams and it was, um, it was an emotional conversation, but it was done in a safe environment. There was trust that we weren't going to go under or go belly up. And we were talking about the longevity of the company, not just a knee-jerk reaction to say, "Hey, we're you know profits are down, we're cutting, or profits are zero, where we're just cutting everyone's salaries." It was we had to explain the why and. We had to show them we had a plan. I
0: don't know how you personally deal with the stress of it because I know you've got a big organization. 50 Fifty Is it 50,000 employees globally?
1: Uh, a little bit over 50,000 employees, yes.
0: Okay. So that's not an insignificant number of human beings reliant on the business. And in fact, you've, you've kind of addressed my next topic area, but I, I might tease it out just a little bit if we could. I call this the lonely road of leadership. Now, you mentioned that in your context, you've got a good bunch of people around you, but you did also mention that leadership by consensus works to a point. So is leadership a lonely road or as lonely as you make it?
1: Ooh, tough one. I think uh, with leadership, it's perspective, right? I think, um, and, and you have to look at it uh, through a multifaceted lens. I, I don't think it's a, it's a yes or no answer. There are times when it's lonely. I think, um, you know, anyone in a leadership position carries a, a weight of responsibility and it's whether you choose to realize that you carry it or not but um you you rightfully put you know the, the way we see it as a as a family is that we're not just responsible for you know the 50 odd thousand people we're responsible for their families and that and that keeps you up at night at times right when things aren't going well you it hurts and you worry but um but if i if i'm open and honest if i look at our ceos i think they shoulder that responsibility as much and they accept it i think any line manager who's responsible for his team sees it in the same in the same way and that's what i mean by perspective it's it's to a degree of scale not necessarily you know it's it's not lonelier at the top than it is on the shop floor to any associate right it, it's how you take leadership and what how do you define leadership um as an individual. Just because I have a title director doesn't make me any more of a leader than your production mechanic who's responsible for keeping the machines running. He's a leader in his own right and his own frame. The The quantums can be defined in a larger way by you know dollars and cents. But if I look at importance, he's more important than me because he keeps the lights on. The same way we'd see a sewing operator, right? And we, we joke about this in our business, that our sewing operator is the only person adding value in our organization at times because they're the ones stitching the shirt. And, and I think that's where it comes from. I think it's perspective. I like to think of myself as fortunate. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm privileged to be in this position.
0: If you're really getting fed income about what leadership is, it's about the people that you're leading and that that you can build a degree of trust that if you say, well, we're going towards uh, A and B, that they're actually going to follow you. They're not going in a different uh, direction because you've built up a a degree of of trust and that you've got whatever that magical skill set is to lead them to the uh, promised land, as it were. If I can make the jump here in the logic a little bit too, if you're going to lead and you're going to be persuasive in that sense, what for you are the most key uh, and critical leader capabilities?
1: The, the first one I, that comes to mind is clear communication skills, being able to effectively convey your message and your thoughts, um, not only you know in a beautiful essay or, or a state of the union speech, but on a day-to-day basis. Having those conversations, Um, the one that stands out the most, and I think I touched on it a few times, um, was respect for everyone. I think that's that's critical. The ability to build consensus in an organization, and I I I spoke about this earlier, where I see the leader as a coach or a leader as a moderator. It's to create alignment in in a in a company, right? When you've got so many different departments all moving, you want to make sure that everyone's steering in one direction and not pulling away, and that takes I think a, a level of maturity. I'd like to say, you know, in a dream state, a calmer disposition, but also the, the ability to follow up. I think that's something everyone misses out a lot, at least have the mechanism in place for constant touch bases. Not, not to the point where you're you're second guessing, but you know we we learned this at the best practice network as well. You know those five minute pop up meetings, saying manage manage by exception. Don't manage by the. Don't have this huge checklist of things you have to get done. I think those are the the big pieces. And one area I'm trying to explore or trying to understand more of is um, vision. And I'm I'm posing a rhetorical question here because I don't necessarily feel that. The leader has to have the vision. I think he has to be able to build the vision with his team. I'm questioning that because you know we we see all the all the glamour, right? When you you see about Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, and how many of them really are there in the world? And but when you look at one, two, three layers below, and you look at you know Microsoft has just hit its all time high in the stock market, and if you if you read Hit Refresh, I mean that was a big opening for me with you know reading Satya Nadella's autobiography, and that's exactly what he did put the most capable people in place and he built the vision for the company with them.
0: I'm very interested in what you said there about whose vision and how do you build a vision? Because I think the when where we go to first principles is the leader necessarily has to have the vision to go forward. I'm, I'm a big believer that if you've got that foresight capability, you should be able to at least identify multiple realizable futures. And then you get people in to help you pick the one that you can it's, get to um, exactly in, with the resources that you've got, because I, I think you made the point today and in other podcasts, you've only got a finite level of resources. And so I think being realistic about what you can get to is what will keep you saying at night rather than saying, because it's easy. I think it's a lot easier to say, I've got a hundred visions for the future. But you know, if you really drill down, how many of those hundred can we actually achieve?
1: It's more about I, I see the leader is framing the, the conversation and you know, putting out the parameters, saying, Okay, guys, you know, our revenue is X, where our costs are Y and um, our profit Z. If we wanted to, to double our profits in the next three to five years. Where do we need to be? What do we need to look at? And and having those conversations to unpack, you know, and and putting in competent teams to to run after each each goal. I think that's the the learning because I, I have no illusions that I'll never be an Elon Musk, right? But um, but I'd love to I'd love to be a you know be able to operate like a a Satya Nadella who is able to delegate and build these teams. And um, he almost plays the, the conductor of an orchestra, right? Just um, working with each specialty set, but together they're, they're performing and, and delivering. That's underpinned on, a culture of, on the culture of the organization. And I think that's the big learning for me or the big aha is that the most successful leaders also make sure they spend a lot of time on the culture or the smell of the place.
0: Let me ask you something. Do you think as the business grows and develops over time that it's constantly throwing new challenges at you as a leader, or is it always the same?
1: Challenges come up on a on a daily basis, right? And I think that's what makes the business fun in manufacturing. No two days are ever alike, and I think they do because um, I mean we've we've had significant growth over the past decade, and with that comes a whole new set of challenges, whether it's process, people, evolution. And even changing business models, right? If you, if you look at what's coming as a, to an industry for us, I mean, obviously logistics is a major challenge for everyone right now. Commodity prices are a challenge for everyone in every, in manufacturing. Um, but now this this whole realm of sustainability has really pushed into hyperdrive, and it's creating these new new models. People are, you know, we have customer uh, brands that we work with who are actively telling customers don't buy our clothes, buy what you need. So that whole concept of seasonal purchasing goes out the window. If you've got a great jacket from last season, keep it. Don't buy another one. So what's that going to do for consumption And
0: in these conversations? And maybe it's just a driver for looking at different business models. And if you're already thinking about it, you're already ahead of the game because if you're not, if if the pandemic didn't trigger it, then the sustainability argument should be triggering it. And if it's not triggering it, maybe you need to find a new industry to be working in. I, I don't know. I don't know any industry that that word that that phrase the the sustainability discussion Good. is not coming to the fore at at one degree or another
1: and it means many things right it's not just about using recycled plastic or recycled polyester it's it's about the sustainability of the organization as well, because um, how many people want to get back into manufacturing? If you look at Generation Z, their aspirations are, are very different to perhaps those of uh, your, yours and myself. What are they looking for in an organization as well? So it, it raises a lot of questions. And um, you know, how do you make multiple generations, not how do you make, how do you ensure that multiple generations work together harmoniously without having conflict? And um, misunderstanding.
0: I totally agree. This idea of of mentorship up and down the generational gap. So can older, more established individuals and leaders in an organisation learn from new cohorts of people coming in to an organisation? And possibly before we get to the last couple of topic areas, let me ask you this: because of the the nature of what you do and the size of your business, do you spend time thinking about the leadership pipeline in your business? Is that something that is discussed?
1: It's something we we've definitely started speaking about more more of over the past few years. About five, six years ago, we we understood that we needed to start building leaders from the ground up and put in leadership and development programs to do so. And we, you know, our our first venture at that was was we 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 said okay we do one a year and that's job well done, right? You pat yourself on the back and say we've done a leadership development program, and, and the more and more time we we spend on it, it's obviously right. You you can sound I'm, I'm, you can tell I, I like self self deprecating humor, but um, <laughs> it, uh, it it was then a big a big aha moment for us, right, where we realized it needed consistency, but we also needed on the job training as much as you need the theory because manufacturing stuff tough, man. It's it's really difficult, and it the types of problems create a lot of reactions in the supply chain and down the supply chain. And, and it's, it's hard work. You need to make decisions. And sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but um, you have to be able to work with people and you need a, you need a strong gut for it. I think, um, you know, it's not a sexy, glamorous job at times when you're you're sitting in a factory and inspecting garments or hundreds of garments or trying to get to the root cause of a problem. But you need to be able to to engage with people and, and make sure you know why you're doing it or people know why they're doing it. Um, theory goes out the window at times when you have to think out of the box. And you'll only know that as a leader if you've lived through it.
0: The point I think I can take out of that, of the many that you've just made, one of them is Industries vary and what's expected in them vary. And I believe it would be exceedingly difficult if you didn't have a background in the, the garment industry, the, the manufacturing sectors, if you didn't, if you came in blind on that or had to learn it on the job. I think there's a difficulty in that transition if you're not from that industry, but surely to God that there, there are people that you can bring up. And that leads to a very different conversation around how do you spot talent? early? Or how do you spot talent at all? Because when I talk about emerging leaders, you could be in your 30s and someone's picked you out for leadership, or you could be in your mid-20s. And so I've kind of, maybe it's because I've gotten older, I've kind of let go of the age thing. It's more about competencies and capacity to grow in a role. And I don't think organization on the whole look for that. I think the easy fix is we need the perfect fit for the organization. And I don't think that person exists. And if you find a way to do it, Raquel, copyright it and get it out there because people want to know what the formula is. But I don't think there's a perfect formula. Do you? Does that resonate with you?
1: You know, if, if only um, the listeners could hear me shaking my head, um, <laughs> but I, I, I totally agree with you, um, quietly chuckling to myself, because this is something we've been trying to figure out. And, you know, it's, it's sad. You, you sometimes only recognize talent when they're leaving you, when they're leaving your organization. And, um, and this is something we've been talking about in, in a roundabout manner. One is how do you create a career pipeline for associates is one and, and two is how do you recognize people, right? And, and base it on merit or capability rather than seniority. And it's a, it's a very difficult um, difficult decision because um, it's cultural, right? And, and maybe I'm, I'm going to sound a little philosophical here, but if I was a manager, would I recognize one of my uh, direct reports to say, hey, he could have my job or or he's much more skilled than me or much more capable than me. It's kind of the antithesis of the human psyche. Unless you're older, a little bit more comfortable or confident with where you are, it's a difficult choice. But when you when you look at the theory, it also, you know, well, it's also more more difficult when you have someone who is highly capable within your team. Would you want to give them up and allow them to progress when they make you look good? The, I mean, these are the questions I have. I don't have answers, but if anyone can solve that, I think uh, they should definitely copyright it. I agree with you, Eric. Yeah,
0: it's the perennial problem with um, management and with teams that are, you know, motivations will differ yeah. and, and you've identified that. And I think it's difficult that if you've got I I think the catch-22 here is if you've got a high-performing team and it's doing well, it's because all of the parts work together to get the outcome. And if there's a star amongst that team, you've got to make a conscious decision if you're leading that team whether or not you're going to promote and and keep developing that person. I I think it's easier when the business is yours or it's a family business. Mm -hmm. If you identify those people, it's easy for you to make that call because it's your business. But for those that are working for you or in any organization, I think the difficulty is, is this person going to take a jump over me? Or are they going to leave my team, which leaves me with a capacity issue? So yeah, look, I I don't know. I've, I've seen those situations. I've been in those situations. And at the time, I thought I was getting the rough end of the stick. But when you look at what, if you look at what other people's roles are, you think, okay, they're at a different point in their career. You can you can kind of understand it. I don't think it's justified, but you'd be surprised, Raquel, how much those on the come up, look at how they're being treated. And I think good talent walks away because they finally realize I'm never going to break through to the next level. I think I need to take my skill set somewhere else. And I think that happens regularly. And I don't think it just happens in your industry. I think in all industries, we're not good at doing that bit. So I I think it's a common uh, problem that is not unique. Uh, to any one industry, uh, it's and it, this conversation's totally worth great. worth pursuing. I think there's you know the if anything, COVID has made this more pronounced in that, what is your development pipeline? And if there's not a pipeline, if you're a smaller organization, how are you bringing up the people that potentially are going to replace you when you're going? Or if you don't do that, if you don't have a succession plan for the people that are in key leadership roles, it doesn't surprise me that when sometimes people leave, there's this massive gap of capability and you're thinking, wow, that person did a lot more than what we thought they did for us. And now that they're no longer there, how do we fill the gap? And that, I think that problem is is writ large across a lot of industries and I, I don't I don't claim to have the answer to it. So-
1: Succession planning is is one of the hardest things to do. The best cases in in my mind are the ones that are never spoken about. In when it comes to succession planning, right? Because otherwise, you hear about these massive successes or or huge failures. But it's 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 also about building the culture of the organization and and the processes around it. It's not just in in manufacturing or or in any industry. I think the a lot of our businesses, especially family owned or or organically developed companies, really rely on. People at every step. We don't look at the processes, so we're actually people managing businesses rather than process managing businesses. And I think that's where the conversation needs to needs to change a little bit. You know, we we need capable people, but we don't want to say that Eric is the best processor in you know in finance um, because you've almost put Eric in a box for for time and eternity then it's being good but also giving you that that avenue for growth right and fulfillment and the minute a company does that you're more motivated to to support the processes and
0: improve them. without catastrophizing, I think one thing to note is that not everyone wants to be a leader. Some people are happy to do a job and go home and mm-hmm. the job is a very functional thing. There's no more to the career than that. And I I, I understand that fully, but there are those that, that want to succeed. And I I think to round this bit of the conversation off and you said it through the podcast that if you can create a culture where people feel safe and heard and valued, I think some some of that stuff will sort itself out. And unfortunately, the, the sorting itself out bit is the bit that people can't put a process to because it just seems to happen. I know there's a lot of literature around high-performance teams and, and good, positive, innovative cultures, but I'm sure I'm sure there are still people looking into how those things succeed. And, and if we knew the formula that well, it, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We'd be having a different conversation. Obviously, it, it's still a, a work in progress. Raquel, let me let me ask you something. Uh, the nature versus nurture question. And I ask this in all the podcasts. So here it is for you. Are leaders born or are they made?
1: I think they're made, to be honest. Um, and I think it's a, it's a lot about nurturing and um, instilling those values from, from a young age, right? Um, if you, if you look at school and, and steps, pe- people mature and develop at different paces. Um, not, it's not just because you're 18, it's r- you're, you're ripe to go to university, right? Um, in the same way, just because you're, you're 45 doesn't mean you should be a manager or a senior manager or a director or. For president, um, but it's your circumstances that help develop those skill sets. Um, some of the best managers we have have played sports in school, simply because they understand what it takes to to run chemistry within a team. Right? They didn't learn that in business school or or anywhere else. So I think it's having those being taught life skills, and it's something. A lot of institutes have only just recently realized that they need to start looking at. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about IQ, being smart, uh, being book smart doesn't mean you're a street smart, right? And um, how how, you, how do you develop your EQ, your emotional quotient? How do you understand people and react to people? Those are, those are the things you need to, to learn and skills you need to learn. I'm still very much a work in progress on this, but it's, it's something we, we try to look at. You know, when we when we see someone who hasn't turned up to work, for example, for, for a couple of days or doesn't look engaged at work, it's very easy to be to look at the black and white and say, hey, he's just not a performer. But have we have we taken the effort to take him out for coffee, ask him or, or, or her, you know, is everything OK? Um, what's going on? Do we take the time and effort to, to know them as people, as our families? And I think that's what that's what comes up. And I, I keep talking about it, but it's culture and values.
0: Again, it's about having the people in your team that are prepared to look beyond the black and white and to say, "Oh, look, you know, David over there doesn't look quite right." You know, five minutes of a time to say, uh, "You know, are you okay?" That that's the mental health push that's happening in Australia by just asking people you know, or even acquaintances, "Hey, are you okay?" Uh, genuinely concerned with how people are, are in, in that moment, I think is an important skill to have. But I think I have to recognize now with my advanced years that a lot of people don't want to ask that question because they think they might be crossing a line or they're not used to asking that question. Because the other side of it is, and I think this is a real problem, when you say, are you okay? If somebody says, no, I'm not, I've got a massive issue and I need help. Sometimes that can floor you and you go, oh shit, I've asked, are they okay? But I don't know how to help them. And putting yourself in that situation sometimes can be confronting because um, especially in the management role, if you're, someone in your team said, hey, look, I've got marriage breakdown or you know, say someone in the family is not well or terminally ill, I'm dealing with some pressures at home. If you've never experienced something like that, you, you really, that EQ bit, the the people bit has to be so well developed because you can, just saying the wrong thing at that time can only make things worse. And I think that's why people hesitate. I'm not saying it's right, but I think that's why people hesitate.
1: But I think that's also part of the reason, right? The first thing I think you have to recognize is that you can't solve every problem as an individual, but the minute you ask, okay, I mean, that's where the power of the network kicks in, right? I can find someone who can help and I can make that effort. <laughs>
0: Yeah, really. Well, yeah. Okay, you got me there. Yeah. Okay. Sure. But you're you're thinking of it from that perspective. on what I'm. Just as an example here, I'm just thinking that. Yeah. In, no. In uh, some...
1: Of course. And yeah. That's what I come back to, right? Those are the skills or values we we haven't been taught growing up. I mean, you know, I think I think when you and I went to school, it, you know being a man was being very macho and very, very stoic, right? It it was wrong to show emotion or um, wrong to show caring. Um, You look at, you look at the world today. It's very different.
0: Yeah. Vulnerability is not a weakness. I don't think it's ever been a weakness. I, I think you've got to be a different kind of person to show that you're vulnerable. And that helps. I think that helps with teams because if people can see you as a human being, they stop thinking of you as someone that's a part, even though you've got the title. And that that's a huge step for some people. Look, Raquel, thank you for your time. Thank you. This has been amazing. Uh, for those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. Thank you again for following the podcast. A lot more content to come. Thanks everyone for joining me and I'll catch you all on the next podcast.